Second metal, my name is Fergal Trainer, and that was Neil Young and Crazy Horse playing Hey Hey My My Into the Black from the 1991 live album Weld. Why am I playing Neil Young on a heavy metal podcast, you might ask? Well, I've always said in my defence that it's hard rock and heavy metal, and that's some of the hardest rock Neil Young ever did back in the early 90s, and is an excellent album actually from start to finish, which I highly recommend. But the other main reason I'm playing that is because today, as I record this, on the 12th of November, it's Neil Young's 75th birthday, and I think that's a fact that should be celebrated. Uh, Aside from heavy metal, I'm a massive Neil Young fan, one of my top two musicians artists i'd say alongside iron maiden and uh, i actually own more neil young albums and music than any other artist um, would you believe uh, so yeah that was um from weld give it a listen if you're interested um yeah so as i said it's uh, thursday the 12th of november and last week i spoke to robert garvin from Dungal, and that was probably the most enjoyable an interesting interview I've ever done. Um, everybody loves a comeback story. Sirithungal are the epitome of the comeback story in uh, 2016 when they returned to the stage uh, for the first time after 24 years. I don't want to spoil any of the interview, which lies ahead, so I won't say anything else except for the fact that it was thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, Robert is a lovely man, and I really enjoyed speaking to him, and I've kept in touch a small bit with him on email afterwards, and he's just uh, so just just such a pleasant man and such a nice person, and I really appreciate him doing the podcast. Um, but that uh, actually kind of points to a wider thing that I've found since I've done this podcast is that everyone I've spoken to Everyone I've had on it as a guest has been a pleasure to deal with, from the early communications via email or Facebook Messenger, to actually arranging to have them on the show, to discussing what format I'd like to record the show in. You know, I've had to um, educate a couple of people on how to use Zoom, but they were so helpful and willing and forthcoming and generous. And to all my guests I've had on previously, and, you know, to anyone listening to this who I might be asking in the future, um, Thank you. Uh, I suppose you can't thank people in advance, but um, you know what I mean. Just thank you to everybody who's come on the show. You've all been a pleasure to deal with. Nobody has been difficult at all. And I appreciate that people are giving me their time, taking time out of their day to do this. Nobody has to do it. Uh, and they all, pretty much everybody has said yes and has, has done it and made time for me. And in many cases, they live on the west coast of uh, the US. So they're taking time out during the day for them, like at noon usually, 
I record at 8pm, it's usually noon over there. So they're taking time out in the middle of their day to do this for me, so I really appreciate it. And uh, especially Robert, thanks for this interview you did with me this week. Um, but just before we get to that interview, I'd just like to touch on a couple of things. Uh, so last week, um, Ken Hensley, the keyboard player and sometimes singer and backing vocalist of Uriah Heep, uh, died. So it was it was very unfortunate news to hear about that. Ken, well, he lived to a good age as well, he was 75, um, and he played on all of those excellent Uriah Heep uh, albums from the 1970s talking about the initial album or sorry the debut album very heavy very humble uh, Salisbury look at yourself demons and wizards the magician's birthday lots of those albums and he stayed with the band until 1980 uh, one of his other credits also includes the fact that he played keyboards on the wasp album the headless children which is a, a really good album from wasp back in their prime in the late 80s as well um but uh yeah just to mark his passing because uriah heap were massively influential on lots of heavy metal bands and um, they had a, a similar sound to deep purple but I think they were heavier um, certainly more uh, guitar riffs and solos and things like that and a different type of use of uh, keyboards or the Hammond organ to Deep Purple although both bands um, stand out due to their use of the Hammond organ um, in uh, Deep Purple it was John Lord but in early Uriah Heep and right throughout the 70s with Uriah Heep it was Ken Hensley so I've decided to play the song Look At Yourself from the album with the same name released in 1971 and Ken actually sings lead vocals on this track so this is Look At Yourself <laughs>
Okay, so that was Look At Yourself from the album of the same name from 1971, just to mark the passing of Ken Hensley there. Um, also recently I had an email from a guy named Philip. He's a from he's Swiss, but he lives in the USA. And uh, he was just, you know, giving me some feedback on the podcast. And, and thanks, Philip, for, for writing in. You were my first email uh, from a, a listener, so thank you very much for that. But um, he recommended the band Atlantean Codex to me. Uh, that band had come up in the second episode of the podcast. Um, it was uh, Kyle McNeil who mentioned them. Kyle from Seven Sisters and at the time I didn't really know who they were so I just kind of smiled and nodded when he mentioned the name but I have gone and listened to uh, the album recommended by Philip it was The White Goddess from 2013 and I thought it was a really good album Um, they're they're described as doom metal I kind of found quite a lot of parallels with power metal although you know getting into splitting hairs about which uh, subgenre of heavy metal a particular band is 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 no fun for anyone really Basically, I thought it was good music and they have some really good songs, epic songs, like 10 minutes in length or eight minutes in length. And it's exactly it's right up my street. And I think um, it was a great recommendation from Philip. He could obviously tell my musical taste from listening to previous episodes of the podcast. So uh, thanks for that, Philip. Um, And to anyone else who would like to communicate with me, my email address is feckinmetal at gmail.com. That's F-E-C-K-I-N. M-E-T-A-L at gmail.com You can still get me under the Feckin Check-In on Facebook, so that's at Feckin Check-In on Facebook and um, on uh, what else? Oh yeah, on Twitter, it's at Feckin Metal Cast on Twitter so uh, if you'd like to communicate with me in any of those ways, I've received some messages from people in on Twitter and um, you know, thanks for that, anyone who's uh, sent me messages and stuff, uh, and I would read, I do read every single message and reply to anyone who, who comments or posts or whatever, so um, that's how you can get in touch with me. Um, also, uh, what did I want to say? Oh yeah, there's a playlist as well, so it's a Feckin' Metal official podcast playlist, and you can find that on Spotify, or yeah, no, no, it's just on Spotify actually, um, and I add to that every week with songs from artists who featured on the show, or music that's been discussed on the show, or generally just songs that I think listeners of the show will like. So have a look at that. The official feckin' metal playlist, the official feckin' metal podcast playlist on Spotify. If you're on Spotify, that is. Um, yeah, I don't want to keep you too long, too long, because this is a, a lengthy episode and. In lengthy, I mean in no way to take away from it. It was time very well spent, and I enjoyed every minute of listening to Robert Garvin uh, telling stories of uh, the struggle, the rise, the fall, and the return of Sirith Ungle. And I'm going to take it to that interview right now. My family's from Ireland. You know, Thin Lizzy was one of my original favorite bands. Matter of fact, we liked them so much when I was in uh, high school, I made my own... Uh, fan like Thin Lizzy shirts, you know, we'd take a white shirt and kind of draw on it with a pen. No way. And uh, there there used to be a, a record store that me and Greg used to go down to in Los Angeles, which was around an hour from here. And it was the only place that we could get import records from around the world. And that's, you know, before the internet. It was pretty much before anything. I mean, there was like some rock magazines out, but they weren't, you know, particularly you know, heavy metal, they're more like probably guys like Bobby Sherman or, you know, you know, teen heartthrobs type stuff back in the day. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. So, so we go to these, uh, uh, heavy metal, uh, our, our, our record stores, you know, they'd carried like, you know, rock music and, and they'd be getting, uh, imports in from all around the world. So, uh, we got Thin Lizzy's first album, you know, as an import. And, uh, you know, I was just really, it was one of the bands that really had a big effect on me. And I actually got to see him play live in Santa Monica uh, 
when Scott Gorham had joined a band, I think it's right after they released the Jailbreak album. Wow. And he was from Los Angeles. So when they, when they came back to play, like it was said, kind uh, of like, uh, you know, uh, hometown boy comes home. And it was just one of the most amazing experience I've ever had. I, even though I saw hundreds of concerts over the years, there's probably two or three bands that sounded as good live as they did on record. And Thin Lizzy was one of them, unbelievably. It was just, uh, yeah. I mean, I wish I could have seen them. Some bands I saw, like I saw Kiss like eight times, you know, Blue Oyster Cult, you know, Black Sabbath bands like that. But I wish I could have seen Thin Lizzy more than once. Do you know what? I'm very jealous of you seeing Thin Lizzy live. Obviously, I'm a bit too young to have seen them. I was only born in um, 85 when they were finished, obviously. But um uh, I, I've always maintained that if Phil Linnett had have lived, Tin Lizzy would have been like a, a force to be reckoned with, even to this day in Ireland, especially like, but probably around the world. Like, they would have been one of these traveling kind of legacy bands who have such a, a back catalogue and such a, um, a mythology around them. I think they still would have been a force to be reckoned with, even in 2020. Well, his voice was, I think, you know, even though the band played really good music, his voice, and that's what I remember from hearing him live with just how clean and clear and just how he projected his voice came through on top of the music and it was just so it was just so amazing you know and I just like I said you know when when we lost him it's a tragedy you know so yeah absolutely yeah and you mentioned Black Sabbath and a Blue Oyster Cult there as well both of which I'm a big fan of um so I'm just going to start now actually well I was going to do a formal start but I think the Tin Lizzy chat is a nice little start to the interview as well so uh, this is Robert Garvin from Sirat Dungal everybody um and I just wanted to say uh you started in 1971 that's the info I'm getting online is that correct that's, that's such a long time ago yeah you know what uh you know, I was recently doing an interview with Greg and Greg was writing down some stuff and, you know, and it didn't jog my memory. Matter of fact, you know, sometimes, you know, you go back through time with people, uh, you know, and you try to remember when things happened. But right around 1971, uh, we got together and started playing. We were in a band before Sirathungo called Titanic. Yes. And uh, we would got together with uh, a couple of uh, schoolmates. One of them was Jerry Fogel. And the other guy was a gentleman, Pat Galligan, who ended up playing in the band, the Angry Samoans. Okay. And uh, he passed away a few years ago. And Jerry, of course, passed away uh, after he left the band. He pretty much drank himself to death. But when we got together originally, you know, we were playing, uh, you know, we wanted to be in a band. And I think we'd gone and seen some, you know, local bands play. And I remember I'd go to school every morning and, you know, the, the, one of the classes that Greg and I had to take was an advanced English class, like a literature class. And we yeah. were assigned Lord of the Rings by J.R. Tolkien. And that's kind of how that all came about us being interested in uh, the early, uh, you know, kind of fantasy work. And I remember Greg would also too, he'd bring to school, he'd bring like, you know, he brought like mountain climbing, you yeah. know, and he brought like, you know, cream, you know, Disraeli gear, stuff like that, like Jimi Hendrix album. You know, and he'd bring it to school, you know, and we're, we're lugging around a bunch of, I think that's before even people had backpacks, you know, you just carried a bunch of stuff around with you, right? And he showed me, <laughs> goes, hey, Rob, you got a bar? He goes, you got to take this album home and listen to it. Yeah, yeah. And so stuff. he would always turn me on to the really, uh, you know, heavy music. And one of the kind of amazing things was, and I think people, you know, I was talking to Jarvis about it once and like he was just amazed. Right across from our school, there was a... a a music 
store like uh you know for equipment called burton's music and i i remember we'd go over there and we'd buy some i bought some symbols there stuff but he'd also sell albums yeah and i remember going in there one day with greg and there was like a black sabbath's first album there and you know we picked it up and greg goes to me goes hey man these guys look good what do you what do you think about these you think these guys would be any good and so we end up buying the album and i remember doing the same thing with uh deep purple's first album like hey you know look at these guys what what do you think you think these guys look good they look good you wonder whether they sound good or not so i mean we were kind of right there at the beginning when all this stuff was happening now of course bands like you know cream and Jimi hendrix were already going on and so that stuff was already uh you know well known but as as these first group of heavy metal bands started you know coming to light we were kind of right there listening to it and when we were in this band Titanic, uh, Pat, his family were folk singers. They wanted to do a lot of Beatles. He wanted to do Beatles songs. And, you know, right. at the time the Beatles were good. That's about the time the, uh, you know, the white album was coming out yeah, yeah. and kind of psychedelic stuff. But, you know, Greg, Greg and me always wanted to play something heavier. So right about the time, like either it's right at the end of 71 or the beginning of 72, we, we, we broke away from Titanic and, me, Jerry, and Greg started Sirathungal with the attempt we wanted to play heavier music and write our own music. So, like that that type of time period, that puts you right in the conversation with the likes of Black Sabbath. I, I mean, I know they've been going for a couple of years, and the likes of Judas Priest. Like you started right around that time, maybe one or two years later than those bands. But like you're you're right there at the start of the scene, almost, or just a couple of years later after the start of that scene. Yeah, that's true. The only difference was we were probably just a handful of years uh, younger. You know, Ken Hensley just passed away, just a, a real tragedy. I mean, yeah. he was one of my favorite bands and early influences also, too. But I think here's the difference, you know, whereas Black Sabbath, those guys were probably like a few years older than us. They were actually going out and playing the clubs. When we started, we were still, you know, we were like 13 years old. So, we, you know, we were practicing, you know, at our parents' house and even though we were writing music and, and we, we were active at that time, you know, we were still technically, you know, young teenagers, you know? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. So a few years younger, that's fair enough. Um, you mentioned, I've heard you mention in the past and you've mentioned there about buying albums. So uh, I've heard you mention previously that you were buying like imports. So you were buying imported Judas Priest albums or Scorpions albums and stuff. And I, I was always wondering to myself, like as a, as a teenager, like those imported albums can be quite expensive. Was that an expensive hobby or pastime uh, as, a, as a young teen? Presumably you didn't have much money at the time. Well, yeah, no, and we didn't. Uh, the joke was my parents would always give me $10 a week to spend on food. And that's back in the day, uh, you know, it was illegal, but I, I'd take the $10 and I'd buy marijuana with it, you know, or weed, that's what we call it. <laughs> Yeah. And then I, I think, you know, I'd have, a, I'd spend half of it on pot and the rest, uh, you know, there was this place across the street from the school next to where that music store was and they sold like little corn burritos, which was like tortillas rolled with beans inside with cheese on top. Mm. So every day I'd buy a uh, uh, half dozen corn burritos and I'd eat those for lunch. Right. And uh, my wife, we were talking about it once and I used to say, don't you remember doing that? And she said, no, she was so poor. She couldn't even afford the corn burritos. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you were, you were rich in, by comparison. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you know, rich is relative, but of course. you know, at the time, you know, my parents were pretty supportive of not only the band, 
but of me, you know, and, and I'm sure, you know, if, if I ask, and I think back then, you know, I mean, I mean, I guess we're thinking today, maybe an import record might be $20 back then. It was probably more like five bucks or two fifty or something. Okay. And, uh, also too, in a lot of these stores, they'd have a cutout section, which were the section, which were like promo albums. Like yeah. let's say the little corner was cut out or had a hole in it. And a lot of times those were like 50 cents or a dollar. And I think a lot of the bands that we bought, we were actually pretty skilled at because, you know, this was before, you know, you could hear any of these bands. Yeah. So we would actually flip the plastic with our finger and we'd slide that the vinyl album out and we'd look at it and we could just tell by the groove structure like whether we thought it was heavy or not and really uh, well the way way to describe that because you know album you know the actual groove is the waveform wiggling back and forth that the needle rides in yeah the more radical the waveform is the more excited that is the rougher the groove looks and if you look at something like let's say it was b like let's say it was uh, kind of like chamber music orchestra stuff their grooves would be uh, more you know, closer together and less uh, uh, agitated. And so, and, and that actually worked pretty good. It doesn't, it wouldn't tell you whether the band was good or not, but it would yeah. tell you, you know, whether they're playing like, you know, heavier, louder music. Well, wow, that, that's fascinating. I've never heard anybody say that before. That's very interesting. Um, so, yeah, I know you mentioned Titanic there. So I know you were in a band called Titanic before Sarah Dungle, and you mentioned you played like Beatles covers. I've heard you say before that you played like Creedence Clearwater Revival covers, but like that obviously wasn't what you wanted to be doing. Um, and I know then when you started off with Sarah Dungle, you played a few gigs in LA. You, you got some gigs in the Roxy and, and the Whiskey and stuff like that, but you didn't have a singer at the time in the early days. Is that right? Yeah, I think we played the Whiskey Go-Go in the Starwood, which is kind of a famous place. It's not there anymore. Uh, the guy that owned it was actually in uh, kind of, I forget what the name of the movie with, uh, he was uh, he was kind of like a, a rich club owner and he was actually involved in uh, some of the killings that were down there. He was he was robbed by some groups of guys with John Holmes. Okay. And they went back. He went back and they killed a bunch of people. And I, I can't remember the actual name of the movie. Uh, okay, I don't it was know. Out, it was out a couple of years ago. But anyway, the, the guy that owned this, uh, he was kind of like, you know, I'm not sure he was a drug dealer, but, you know, he was, you know, back then, you know, everyone was doing tons of cocaine and stuff. And this guy owned a, a series of clubs and one was a Starwood. And it was a club that a lot of the heavy bands played uh, at. Uh, I remember... Tim and I saw Judas Priest play there the first time they came to town. Yeah. And uh, we were buddies with Rush. We, we saw Rush play at a couple of the places, including the Starwood. And I think we were at the Whiskey Go-Go when Rush first came to town and there was just a handful of people there. And we got to go backstage with them and meet them. And, and then they played at the Starwood. So a lot of times we'd, we'd not only go down to see bands, but we'd be, we'd talk to the promoters trying to, to get booked there. And so we actually played those two clubs without a singer. And, yeah. you know, it was kind of weird back at the time doing that, but we had a, a kind of like a loyal group of followers from our hometown. And, um, and usually a couple, hun couple of hundred or 300 people would drive down to see us. Plus, you know, people in the local area would kind of come out to the bar like they would a, a pub, you know, just to go out and see what was playing that night course and, and when you were booking these gigs or when you were trying to negotiate these gigs were you saying that you didn't have a singer or were you kind of just keeping that quiet at the time <laughs> oh yeah back then it was 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 so much difference kind of about the end of the time that we were playing at clubs in la they were starting to do stuff where you actually had to pay to play 
or, or they would mm. give you like, you know, 300 tickets and you had to pay up front for the tickets and you had to sell them to all your buddies. Yeah. And that's about the time that we just decided to, you know, to stop. That wasn't, I mean, it wasn't really part of our thing. You know, that's, that's when all the hair bands were starting to explode in the LA scene. And they kind of hung around. All they did was stand around on the street all day and night. You know, I guess they sold tickets to their buddies, but that just, you know, we wanted to create music. We, we didn't really want to spend, you know, time, uh, you know, supporting the clubs, you know, we thought that was their job to actually, you know, book the bands and sell tickets. So what we'd kind of do is like, let's say we're backstage with Rush or back there smoking some pot or something. And, and the, the manager of the club would be there and, you know, we'd say, Hey, we're in a band too, you know, and, you know, we'd give them a cassette tape or what have you. And that's how our first album came about frost and fire. Yeah. We were kind of struggling trying to get noticed by the record companies you know, and we'd, you know, we made cassette tapes and we'd send out, you know, packets, you know, with pictures of the band, a promo shot, all that kind of stuff with uh, cassette tapes. And a joke was, you know, there'd be a secretary at all the record companies opening up the envelopes and throwing everything away and taking the tapes and erasing them and using them for other stuff. Right. <laughs> so we decided, hey, what if we put out an album on our own and tried to make it as nice as if it was put out by a real record company? And that's kind of how we decided uh, to do uh, Frost and Fire and it was never really meant to be an album to be released as our like our first album it was kind of be a demo to try to show record companies hey you know if you signed us and kind of spent some money on us this is what we could do yeah even better just showing you you know and um, you know we got in touch with Michael Whalen because I was reading at the time Greg had loaned me not only was he turned me on to the music in the past he turned me on to literature sure uh, sword and sorcery stuff you know uh, horror stuff like H.P. Lovecraft or, uh, uh, you know, Conan the Barbarian, you know, by Robert E. Howard yeah. and all those stories. And he'd loaned me the book Stormbringer. And we'd actually wanted a, a Frank Frazetta cover. That's what we were trying to get for our first album for Frost and Fire. But right at the time we were looking at that, Molly Hatchet came out with the cover on one of their albums. And oh, at no. the time, we were <laughs> hey, man, these these guys, this is like country rock. Why do you know, what does this, what does this picture have to do with their music? Right. Yeah. Did and you? so I remember we were all bummed out like, wow, that's the cover that we wanted for this album. And we hadn't contacted Frank Frazetta, but we were, we were, you know, in, in the process of trying to do that. Mm. And I remember Greg loaning me Stormbringer and I'm looking at, I'm holding it in my hand and I look down at it and I said, you know, if this could be used as an album cover, this is even better than that. This would be the best album cover that ever, was made so i wrote daw books who actually published the um, elric series at the time they got me in touch with michael whalen and we sent him some of our music and he was all like hey i've never done a band before so you know let's do this and so that started our relationship with him which i think has been probably one of the most successful relationships of the band considering sure. how talented the gentleman is and it's at switches continue to this day obviously as well oh my goodness uh, he had a show, he lives in on the East Coast, uh, Connecticut. And because uh, that was a good jumping off place for him, like all the business he used to do, uh, painting, uh, uh, you know, his uh, masterpieces for like, book covers. And yeah. if you know, he did so many famous, he did Arthur C. Clarke, 2000, Tennis Space Odyssey. He did uh, Isaac Asimov's Robots of the Dawn. I mean, he just did also Stephen King, uh, Firestarter. He did all these famous things. So 
yeah. he would kind of live near New York because that's where all the publishing companies were. And he would go in and talk to him. Um, and so when we contacted him, you know, it was kind of an am- amazing thing, but we'd never really seen any of his real work. And uh, he was out here doing a show and he actually brought one of his paintings uh, to my parents' house, which we practiced in at the time. And at the time, our bass player, Mike, his parents had a restaurant. So we went to go eat at the restaurant. And he left this painting on the staircase going up to the band room at my parents' house, which was so amazing. Mm. But then just a few years ago, he had a show down in Pasadena where he had uh, uh, the Stormbringer uh, picture that was on our first album. And he had a, a bunch of his other uh, really famous works of art all brought together, ones he did for H.P. Lovecraft books. Yeah. And Tim and I went down to go check that out. And it was just so amazing to, to look at this man's work. You would get right up close to it, like, you know, and I'm not joking, in, in the Stormbringer picture, you, you look at it and you could see like, you know, in Elric, you could see nose hairs in him. You know I mean? It just, and the color, <laughs> the color and the backgrounds of all these paintings just glowed. And I used to be an artist, you know, and I remember painting stuff. The more I painted, everything would turn mud colored, right? right. So to have these, some of these paintings of his were like, you know, six feet tall. And the backgrounds were just colors that just glowed like, almost like they had light behind them. I remember going to Tim, I said, oh my goodness, I said, this, this guy, you know, he's not only he's an artist, this is, this is unbelievable. And he goes, how does a person, you know, how does a person even create this stuff, you know? And yeah. we were talking to Mike, we're saying like this, we're going, this is, you know, your work is so unbelievable. You know, how do you do this? You know, and of course he just breaks it down. He goes, well, you guys are musician, you know, that's, your music is, you know, just as good. It's, it's, and people look at it and wonder, how do you do that? Okay, well, me yeah. and Tim were saying, no, 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 this guy's a, this, this man's a huge superhuman uh, force of nature. And I still stand by that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, those, those paintings are obviously beautiful and they've, they've uh, been the covers of all your albums ever since. Um, and you mentioned Lord of the Rings and stuff there earlier, um, or you certainly mentioned that you were into that type of uh, fiction. Uh, I, I know that you actually, the, the name Siratungal comes from a reference from Lord of the Rings. Uh, I, I can't claim to be a fan of Lord of the Rings personally, but I'm aware that it's like... Um, it was a pa- a pass or something uh, well, on one of uh, one of the mountains. There was a castle or something within one of the stories, uh, and you took your name from that. Is that some kind of correct? Yes, sir. And you know yeah. what you should do is if you ever get a chance, you should pick up that uh, you know the books and read them. What's amazing, you know, the movies are out and those are good, but the books the books are actually really good literature. Now, at the time, you know, when when Greg and I were assigned to read that in school. You know, these three books, each book is like maybe 600 pages, you know. So reading all three of them is kind of like reading War and Peace. It's like it's yeah. not a simple, it's not like you're going to sit down and, you know, uh, you know, it's it'd be more akin to like going on Netflix and watching, you know, 15 seasons of Breaking Bad. You know what I mean? It's not, <laughs> it's not a simple task. But it's a commitment. If you ever get a chance, if you ever get a chance to pick them up and read them, it's some what J.R. Tolkien did is some pretty amazing work. And it, 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 it seems to be glossed over to be more like a fantasy, you know, with the elves and the dwarves and stuff to be something kind of light, but it's actually has a very dark center to it. And um, the bad guy in the book, Sauron, he lived in this place called Mordor and it was surrounded by mountains and it was really hard to get into. And there was a, a, a pass up through the mountains with a tower called Sirathungal, and they actually pronounce it with a K, like Kirathungal, 
yeah. and there were stairs to get up to it. And uh, what lived in the, in, in the caves underneath this tower was this giant spider monster, Shelob. And Sam and Frodo, the guys are going through trying to get to this volcano inside Mordor to throw this uh, ring into the fire to melt it because it was kind of like a ring that was owned by the bad guy. And, mm. you know, to actually destroy it, they had to throw it into this uh, uh, Mount Doom, which was like a giant, you know, like volcano full of lava. Okay. And so to get, get into that area, they had to, to go up through there. And that's where this part was. And like when we were playing in the band, we we're going, we we're trying to come up with different names and, you know, we were reading this at the time and it, it kind of was something that uh, kind of affected us strongly. Now we, we looked back on it years later, you know, and said, Hey, uh, I wish we would have named the band something more like, you know, one syllable name like kiss, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or yeah. Something you know, to or cream or, or whatever. Right? Something that rolls off the tongue. <laughs> yeah. And we actually, at the time, uh, the book was released in the United States and they made a cartoon out of it. So we actually had permission from the guys that actually own the rights to it, to use our name. Mm. Uh, so I'm not, right. I'm not sure whether they, I'm sure that's probably been sold several times from hand to hand. Yeah. I remember reading about that. So the Tolkien estate actually sold the rights to Lord of the Rings before the, like the most successful films obviously were made. Uh, and you had to get permission from them to, um, to use the name Sarah Thungle. Well, we we got it from the company called Saul Zantz, and they were the guys that owned the rights yeah. uh, to the here in the United States. Very good. Okay, so you you've, you were talking about Frost and Fire. That was your first album at the time. Kerrang! Magazine described you as the worst heavy metal band of all time, or the worst band of all time. Um, but they kind of changed their tune years later. But uh, how did that feel at the time to have a review which was saying things like that? Well, you know. I, I don't remember reading that. I do. There was a book once Greg showed me and it was like a heavy metal uh, encyclopedia and we were in there and that's what it said. It goes, we were the worst, worst heavy metal band of all time. Uh, but actually there are some guys at Krang. There's a gentleman there, Jeff Barton, who was kind of like a bigwig there for years. Yeah. He picked third album. Uh, one foot in hell is one of the best albums of the year. Yeah. yeah. Um, so o over the years we actually had a, there was a mixed bag with critics I mean, there were several critics here in the United States that just love the band and they do anything they could to put articles in the newspaper about us when we'd play and stuff. But then there were, you know, a handful of people that, that never got, got us. And I think to this day, that's true about our band. We write music, the kind of music that we think that we want to hear for ourselves. We, we don't really sit down and go, you know, hey, you know, all these speed metal bands are playing this or everyone's got you know, these hair metal bands are doing this kind of stuff, you know, mm. let's try to do that. because That's how people are making money. We always thought, Hey, how could we write the heaviest music possible that we can do ourselves? And that's what that's always been our kind of formula. And so in a way, what critics say, you know, it affects us and, you know, it would make us happy or disturb us depending whether it's good or bad. But I don't think that that, changed ever what we were doing even up to you know our latest album forever black which has gotten some mixed reviews you know 90 percent of people like it but there's always a handful of people that listen to our band and they don't really understand it uh there's a little funny story about that uh one of the guys that didn't like forever black the most and gave us the lowest score and one of the lowest scores we got was like 7.5 out of 10 mm. which to us was well like you know if that's bad but the gentleman kept saying he said that he hated it so bad or he disliked it so bad 
he had to listen to it two or three times each day just to figure out why he didn't like it. And we were cracking up thinking, well, you know, if he's listened to the album several times a day, that's, you know, he's not a critic anymore. Maybe he's a fan. So. Of course, yeah. Well, you can't listen to something you hate two or three times a day. I certainly couldn't anyway. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, um, I know what you mean. Like, I, 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 you, I think you mentioned Uriah Heap earlier, and there was a famous quote from, I think it was Sounds Magazine in the 70s, where somebody said, if, if Uriah Heap make it, I can't remember what your man said, that he'd retire as a journalist or something or something like that. But like, there's often in the early days of bands, I'm sure Black Sabbath got similar types of reviews. They got terrible reviews when they started out because people didn't really understand the music or they didn't, it was new and it was, it was different to what they had heard previously. And it was just, I don't know, maybe shocking or something musically. Yeah. You know, you're right. I had their first album. Uh, you know, I remember dream air gypsy, you know, and stuff. It's just amazing. You know? So yeah, I, I, I don't know. Critics are always going to, you know, that, that's what they do for a living. You know, they like some stuff, they don't like other stuff. I think getting back to our music, you know, what was amazing is that uh, when our first album came out, it was imported into Europe and we got a lot of people writing us. Um, we even put like little uh, uh, postcards in there. Yeah. You know, so people fill it out and write back with their name and address and then we'd send them off like a little, uh, uh, you know, sticker, you know, yeah, letter, yeah. you know, tell them what's going on with the band. And we gained quite a few fans, you know, all over the world, you know, mainly in, you know, let's say, uh, you know, in England, uh, Germany, France, you know, stuff like that. It's where the majority, I think, of the stuff was sold. And uh, people seemed to really like it, you know. And for us, what was so funny is there was a local radio station in, in Los Angeles. I won't mention their name because they're still around. Hey. But they played two of our songs frost and fire and i'm alive mm. on one of their band nights and yeah, uh, yeah. the next day i talked to the dj and i go you know what do you think because we you know we all you know sat around you know I, when i think of it i think of like fdr or, you know or someone or uh, uh you know winston churchill or something sitting around a radio listening to someone during world war ii where we all kind of got around a <laughs> radio to listen to him play play our songs right yeah, you know yeah. and we we're all excited wow they're playing us on the radio you know that was a big thing at the time and the next day the guy said you know hey everyone here likes it and you guys are really good but your stuff is so heavy we can't we can't play this on a radio station and that what kind of blew us away these are the same stations that we're playing at the same time black sabbath and deep purple and before you know iron butterfly yeah. or what have you and so you know we're just like wow the, and what we put on Frost and Fire, the majority of everything we put on Frost and Fire was what we considered to be our commercial music. And what I meant by that is back in the day, you know, if you put out a record, you had to have something that they'd play on the radio. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, let's say Thin Lizzy doing Whiskey in the Jar or something like that, right? And so all of the songs on Frost and Fire, Frost and Fire, I'm Alive, you know, Better Off Dead, all those songs were songs that we thought, hey, they might play this on the radio. The other songs we were playing at the same time, like Finger of Scorn, yeah. Adam Smashed, Zerathungle, Death of the Sun, were songs that we liked, but we thought, you know, hey, this, this is too crazy. And when, when the guy said, you know, this is too heavy for us, we're thinking, well, what's that all about? This is, and I, I don't want to say our most lightweight, but th this was our top 40. This was our commercial music that we put on this album in an attempt to gather some kind of like, you know, record company attention. Yeah. And so we decided when we did King of the Dead, 
that we're just going to push out all that to the side and we go, Hey, we're going to put out the heaviest album we can, you know, not trying to even cater to anyone's desires to try to do something for ourselves. And, and that's how King of the Dead came. About. Well, I mean, if they thought I'm alive was too heavy for heavy metal radio, God help them if they heard Adam Smasher. Yeah. You know, well, I don't know, you know, and I look back on some of that, there's some really good stuff on that album and I still really like it. Uh, you know, some guys in the band, they still don't, they don't like the way it sounds or the way it was mixed or the tones and stuff. But what I, what I love most about those early albums, cause that was in a time of much simpler times, you know, a tape before digital recording and everything was around. Yeah. And so on our first two albums, I like when I'm listening to any song, you feel like you can reach into the music and grab the bass guitar or the guitarist or mm. the, each drum separately because there's so few tracks going on there, you know, and, we were laughing like when Forever Black were all arguing about when they're mixing it down. And I was trying to complain and like, you know, I can't hear the bass clear enough. Or, and, you know, and Armand, the engineer, um, mm. he's also the guitarist in Night Demon and yeah, he owns yeah, a yeah. recording studio right next to our band room, right? And he goes, well, if you didn't have like, you know, eight rhythm guitars and four lead guitar tracks, you know, maybe <laughs> your stuff would sound so It's fair enough, Armand. <laughs> fair enough. And I, I gotta, I have to apologize. I know, uh, What's funny is uh, one gentleman was telling me for an interview he did, he goes, he, a lot of fancy interviews, he'll ask him a question and they'll say yes or like oh. no. And he goes, and I was apologizing because someone will ask me like a simple question and I'll go on for 30 minutes. And he goes, that's actually what he's looking for is these long answers. But I have to apologize in advance for uh, being so long winded. I think having a band been together so long, all I have left is like maybe all these ancient stories that are kind of funny to tell no don't don't apologize whatsoever uh, i'm the same i'm looking for people to speak um i i don't want to be speaking too much at all actually i, I want the guests to speak so uh long answers are ideal so don't apologize with that um so we I did need, i need to tell you something else though because this is very this is part of an earlier story all so right. we'd slice open the albums and we'd see what the grooves look like and we'd bring them home and play them and like maybe one out of ten albums would be a great album they're like wow look look at this new band you know we find a band and we're all stoked about, you know, mm. whether it was Bungie or, or uh, Cactus or, you know, any of these bands we were listening to at the time. But then some of the albums would be kind of duds, you know, and, and every once in a while a band would have one. Back then, if, if an album had one or two really good songs on it, that was considered successful. Yeah. So when an album came out, like, let's say, Black Sabbath's first album or Deep Purple and Rock, where every song's good, you would just be blown away. Like, how come they only have... You know, every song is good instead of just one or two. Mm. So anyway, we ended up with some of these albums that had no good songs on them. So we kind of live in a hilly area. And there was a, a, a street that went up to the top of a hill where rich guys had houses up there, right? Yeah. But down over the side of the cliff, maybe 300 feet, there was this uh, flat plain, kind of like a dry uh, lake bed. So the records that we didn't like, we'd take up there and we'd throw them out kind of like boomerangs and they'd soar out like maybe you know a hundred feet and then drop three or hundred feet to this flat dry lake bed and then the records would explode into pieces and that would be kind of like our uh, ceremonial uh, sacrifice of the bad albums so um, was, any particular albums that you remember that you threw into the lake <laughs> you know not really because the, the only the albums i remember are the ones that you know and there's some albums too that we bought at the time that were somewhat questionable mm. but ended up being pretty good uh 
you know, later on, uh, there was a band, May Blitz, uh, was one of the earlier bands. And, and these are ones we didn't throw away. There was another band, uh, Bull Angus, and it had one really good song on it. I remember the, I remember the song, uh, Walk, Don't Run, or something like that. Okay. Uh, but a lot, a lot of these bands, I remember, you know, if, if, and if it had one really good song on it, you know, it was redeemed from the explosion in the, the dry lake. <laughs> Very good. Uh, that's that's a great story. Um, so, so you mentioned King of the Dead. So you, that's your second album, obviously. Um, I was I was watching your DVD. So this is actually how I got into the band. You released a DVD a couple of years ago, or last year actually, called I'm Alive. And I, I will confess, I'm not a lifelong Sarah Thungle fan. I only got into you in the last couple of years. Um, I would see songs coming up on, on Spotify or, you know, references to the band over the years. And I did kind of find it hard to get into the vocals, uh, Tim's vocals. I thought they were a bit jarring. And it wasn't until I watched the I'm Alive DVD that I kind of warmed to Tim's vocal style. I, I think it might have changed a bit over the years, maybe deepened slightly, but um, I really warmed to the band after watching that DVD and I, and I really got into it. But another part of that DVD was the documentary that you did, which covered your entire career. Um, and there's a bit in the documentary where you're talking about your second album, uh, King of the Dead, and you've just signed with Enigma and you uh, flashed up a letter on the screen that you received from the record company. So there was a very specific part of the letter I just wanted to ask you about because this stuff is fascinating to me just as a fan. Um, so they were talking about, you know, signing the contract for the album King of the Dead and they said they would provide uh 100 promotional copies plus 500 promotional flats of the album cover and you could buy additional copies from them for two dollars so w- one thing i wanted to ask you is are the 100 promotional albums they provided are they for you as a band to go and send off to record or sorry to to radio stations and, and places like that and magazines i would have thought that would be the record labels job yeah you know what uh back then uh some of that stuff was pushed onto the band and I remember going down to uh, Enigma. And it may not have been King of the Dead, uh, or, or maybe it was. I remember because Motley Crue was coming out at the same time. They 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 had some really rich investor put together some money that uh, that put out their first album. And I think we were stuffing uh, some of our albums uh, in a, a packet to send out, like a promo thing. And yeah. so I think some of those those records, you know, when they they didn't give that to the band, they just meant that that was stuff that they would use for promo. Uh, and, okay. and and so once again, so we're there in kind of like an assembly line, you know, we'd put one of our albums, one of Motley Crue's, you know, like some other like Slayer album or something at the time. Uh, matter of fact, I remember one of the guys from Enigma going to us saying he held up Slayer's album, you know, which ended up to be a really big band, way bigger than us. Mm. And he's going, man, he goes, if... He goes, if these guys can put out an album and you guys can't be like one of the biggest bands around, you know, it's some derogatory thing about Slayer at the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but a lot of that stuff, you know, was kind of, uh, it was kind of, I don't want to say groundbreaking, but it was so different than all the stuff that was going on at the time. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but I, yeah, I remember, I remember doing that with some of the promo things. Yes. Yeah, some of that stuff also too, uh, later in that same record company, we ended up, being with Enigma, they were first called Green World, then they were Enigma, mm. they ended up being Arrest Records. And uh, over time, we got bounced around with them. And I think I kind of uh, related to like uh, uh, someone in an abusive relationship and they yeah. keep going back to their abusive spouse because they don't know what else to do. 
and with the exception of uh, One Foot in Hell, which is one metal blade, kind of like a brief little respite from being beat up by our uh, abusive spouse, we kept always going back uh, to these guys. And, and at some point, you know, I mean, obviously they, they helped the band because without them, we couldn't have got our record imported to Europe or what have you. But also they weren't really necessarily uh, a big label and they really didn't know what to do with us. And there wasn't more than a handful of people at the record company that even understood what we were trying to do, I think. Sure, sure. And uh, just one other thing I wanted to ask you about that. You know, they said the 500 promotional flats. Like, I assume that's like the vinyl artwork with no record in it. What, what is that used for? What, what, what's the purpose of those? Things? Yeah. Well, you know, here, here's what happened to that. You know, I, I worked for years as a graphic artist and a printer. And so we learned when our first album came out, you could actually request to go down when they printed up the, the covers and do a, a, a press check. So let's say they're printing our album cover and it's mm. on a giant machine or, you know, it's printing, you know, five color, four color, six color, whatever it was at the time. And you would actually sit there and they'd pull ones off there and you could look at it and you'd say, Oh, there's too much red or it's, it's too light or what have you. And okay. in a way we did this, we did this on purpose for two reasons. One is cause you'd get it dialed in uh, c- kind of like almost the way a band's mixing down an album, you know, you, you can add more bass or more guitar or what have you when sure. you're printing the thing up. And since I discerned, I designed the first three uh, album covers, of course I didn't do the artwork, but I did all the layout and yeah. the design and all that kind of stuff at the time. Cause that's what I was doing. Graphic design. I wanted to be there to make sure that they didn't screw up, you know, this thing I worked on. Right. And the, the, uh, the icing on the cake was when they were done, they'd have a stack of like maybe, you know, 500 copies that they're going to just throw away, you know, or recycle the back then is before recycling, but they're just going to toss and you'd say, Hey, can we have these? And so we'd grab them and bring them home and we could cut them up and hand them out to our friends or sign them. And over the years, I, I have quite a bit of those left and me and Tim signed a bunch of frost and fire ones. And, uh, Jarvis at some point, you know, going to try to uh, uh, sell them to some of our fans. But basically what it is, it's the album cover that's laying flat. Yeah. Now, what was amazing when they did our first album cover, they printed four or five covers up at the same time. And so I have some sheets where Herb Alpert and a Tijuana Brass. And uh, I'm trying try to remember some other band like the Isley Brothers or something uh, you know, a couple of different bands are all on the same sheet of paper, and it's kind of amazing to see them all together. So we would get those proofs, and we'd use them for promo material. I remember, because uh, once again, it's for the internet or anything. Everywhere I'd go, I'd have a stack of our album covers. You know, I'd, we'd go out to bars and trying to hit up, meet girls or whatever, go, hey, here's a band I'm in. Check this out. And, and people would be <laughs> impressed because, you know, you're actually giving them something, not just yeah, a yeah, line yeah. of bullshit. Very good. Okay, good stuff. Well, right. anyway, those are still around, and hopefully we can get one of those to you when they're unleashed to the public. Or... <laughs> All right, sounds good. Um, okay, so that was King of the Dead. So a couple of years later, you released One Foot in Hell. I think uh, for King of the Dead, did you leave uh, Enigma and go on Metal Blade, or was, or was One Foot in Hell the one you did with Metal Blade, and then you went back to Enigma for Paradise Lost? Well, that that's... That's kind of a long story, but how it started was when we first were going to put out our first album, Frost and Fire, and we actually started uh, producing it. You know, we were buddies with Brian, Brian Slagle, and he worked at a a record store in the San Fernando Valley, which is like a suburb of Los Angeles, and the store was called uh, Oz Records. 
yeah. and he was like one of the guys there, the manager, whatever. And like, you know, we hooked up through him cause he was into heavy metal, you know, and he was putting out a magazine, heavy metal review in Los Angeles. And, you know, we're going like, Hey man, this is our dream to put out our out al- our album and get famous. And he's all, my dream is to start my own record company. And he goes, I'm going to do a compilation album. Would you guys want to be on there? Hmm. Uh, you know, one of the first bands uh, he picked and we said, yeah. So we gave him a song death of the sun, which is on metal massacre one, which is metal blades first uh, album they ever released. Yep. And uh, he hooked us up with green world because they were actually an importer exporter and delivering the albums around. Now, after we'd done Frost and Fire and King of the Dead, Brian's label was actually starting to get bigger. And so he goes, hey, man, you know, you guys should have been on here all along. Why don't you guys come over and do One Foot in Hell? Yeah. And so we did there. And I think, though, at the time, Brian was putting out like, you know, you know, like maybe 10 albums a month or what have you. And uh, Mm. I don't want to say we got lost in the shuffle, but, you know, I think, you know, he'd mentioned this. We, me and him had talked several times about it we were, you know, we were all kind of young back then. We weren't sure what was going on. And I think he was either disappointed in something that we'd done, either our record sales. And I think I was always abrasive to all the record company guys. Cause every day I'd be on the phone with them going, you know, Hey, what are you guys doing for the band? You know, how come you guys aren't promoting it better or doing this? And I think uh, a lot of guys that alienated, and I think I might've done that even to Brian. And I right. think at some point, you know, he wasn't interested in doing, you know, another album after One Foot in Hell. And uh, we actually lost a few members anyway. So there was a couple of, there was a couple of years between that and our next album, Paradise Lost. Yeah, yeah. And so we ended up going back to Enigma and they'd actually been sold to uh, Warner Brothers at the time, mm-hmm. I think. And so uh, they, so they morphed into Restless Records and then they decided, okay, well, we'll put your album out. But when Paradise Lost came out, they didn't do anything to promote it. Matter of fact, most of our fans were in Europe and they, they asked me to contact companies in Europe to see whether companies would like to license uh, the record over there. And several companies which had done before Frost and Fire and King of the Dead said, oh, well, you guys sound the same as you always did and we're not interested in your music. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of, and that kind of just died right there and two weeks after paradise lost came out we got a letter in the mail we'd signed a three album deal with them and they released us from the contract okay and a couple of more guys then left the band and which ended up with just me and tim sitting in our band room going you know what are we going to do are we going to continue doing this you know we'd been together for 20 years never yeah. made any money i mean that's a joke sometimes uh nowadays we complain about money and because we're, we're broke but back then I remember paying, and this is when money was worth a lot more than it is now. I remember paying around $500 a month out of my own pocket just to keep the band going Yeah. for close to 10 years for the band room and uh, fan mail. You know, I, I'd go to the post office and it'd be like $100 to send letters to Europe and stuff. So we were spending quite a bit of money. And even though that we wanted to keep it going, uh, all the speed metal stuff was exploding in Europe. All the hair metal thing was going on in Los Angeles. And we just didn't feel like we were a part of any of that. And we, you know, we thought there was no room for the, the original classic heavy metal that we were playing uh, for anyone to either appreciate or listen to. Yeah. And we, at the time when we broke up, we didn't want to, but I think we looked around us and we just said, you know, we've done this for 20 years. Hey, we had some fun, but you know, how much longer, you know, we ended up 
you know, we're going to spend the rest of our life supporting a band that never gets any recognition yeah, yeah. or notice. And so we just kind of decided, Hey, before, you know, we turn into old men, we're going to, uh, you know, hang up our thing and move off to stage left. Now, when Jarvis came back on the scene, all that thing turned around, but I mean, for 20 years, we were, we were done. Um, I, I want to ask you actually there, so you were saying you were keeping the band afloat yourself, money out of your own pocket, $500 a month, uh, and responding to fan mail even still. So this is in the Paradise Lost era, like 91, 92. Uh, do you think the um, attention and the you know availability you gave to fans helped to um, foster a, a loyal fan base that when you did eventually return 24 years, 24 years later was still there like do you think that kind of uh, effort that you put in helped to keep the name alive over the period where you weren't active well you know what i think pretty much what really did that though when i said remember i said michael whalen was one of the best things that ever happened to the band the other yeah. one was actually legal because after the band had broken up uh metal blade records in europe approached me and said hey look we want to put out an album of some of your older stuff that was never released and that's how Servants of Chaos came about. Yeah. Uh, the reason that was released was all the old tapes were deteriorating to the point of, you know, you'd have to cook it, you know, heat it up really. So to bake the, the oxide onto the, the tape and yeah. run it through a machine one last time and digitize it because the tapes were just self-destructing. And so what uh, Greg and I actually got involved in that because he had a lot of the early tapes and we just decided, hey, let's put out. And you think think of kind of like a Metallica garage tape type thing. That's what we were trying to do. We were trying to put out an album just of a bunch of our old stuff because a band was broken up. We never thought we'd get back together. And we thought, hey, while we have this stuff before it's destroyed, let's at least put it out. Yeah. And while that was going on, Brian kept re-releasing, you know, whether it was Frost and Fire, King of the Dead or One Foot in Hell. He would always keep... Uh, putting out our albums on CD and every once in a while they'd put out like a picture disc or something. And so I think that's what kept the name alive. And since the albums were still available, you know, I'd get, you know, uh, letters from, you know, Sweden rocks or, you know, uh, uh, deaf forever, you know, the, all the big magazines in Europe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, rock hard saying, Hey, do you guys want to do an article? And, what was amazing, some of these magazines, the band was broken up and they do like a 10 page article with, you know, full color photographs, all pictures of the albums, little skeletons down in the corner where the page numbers were. Yeah, yeah. And it, we were cracking up because like, you know, when a band was together, we could barely get like a, you know, quarter page review <laughs> and like, you know, the band's dead and we're getting all these giant full color articles. Yeah. And I think when the band actually finally got back together, and to totally answer your question, you know, we'll play at shows in Europe and there'll be a handful of people our age, like original fans that do show up mm. and they are still there. Don't, don't be, be mistaken. But the majority are, are kids that weren't even born when we broke up. They're under 30, you know, so it's just amazing. Right. OK. And you mentioned uh, Jarvis Letterby, obviously, who is your manager and is the singer and bassist in Night Demon and, and now plays bass in Sirithungal. So I spoke to him a few weeks ago and uh, he's basically taken full credit for, for, <laughs> for getting the band back together. Uh, should he should he be taking that credit or <laughs> what did he really give you kind of the kick up the ass to get to get things moving again? Yeah, no, no, no. He, he deserves he deserves a lion's share of that. What <laughs> happened was uh, he'd been trying to contact me for years and, you know, I had a bunch of bitter feelings over the band just because we felt like we were kind of weren't 
you know, very well taken care of by any of our record companies, you know, not so much anger at fans or anything, just like, you know, yeah, hey, we yeah. had a chance, but if we would have had a bigger chance, maybe something would have happened. And I think, um, so I was a little bit bitter from that. Um, so he'd been contacting me for a couple of years uh, through a friend of mine, Carl, who was actually drummer in another uh, hardcore punk local band, uh, Ill Repute, which is kind of like a famous, you know, punk band around the world yeah. from a sister city of Ventura where I live in, in Oxnard. And that's where Jarvis is from. And so he knew, he knew uh, Jarvis and he kept telling me because we worked together. And he said, hey, this guy, you know, wants to talk to your band about getting your band back together. I'm like, just, I'm not interested. And uh, the other guy that does deserve some credit is Oliver, uh, who puts on Keep It True in Germany yeah. every year. Because for around 10 years, uh, you know, years before I even met or talked to Jarvis, I mean, I have emails going back to 2001 where he emails me and he goes, hey, Rob, he goes, I put on a festival every year here in Germany. And it's, you know, we're trying to bring back all these older bands, you know, in classic metal. Do you guys want to play? Yeah. Like, no, I'm not interested. He goes, well, do you want to talk to other guys in the band? I go, well, they're probably not interested. And he goes, well, how about this? He goes, do you want to, he goes, I'll fly you over to come to our show. Mm. I'm like, well, no, that's ridiculous. Why would I want to do that? You know I mean? It's like, we're not, the band's not together. And sorry. So every year, like. Sorry to interrupt. Every year, like clockwork. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. He would send me a. No, every year like clockwork, I'd get another 2002, 2003, right? Yeah. So when Jarvis finally got me to meet with him, he goes, hey, look, he goes, I know you guys aren't interested in getting back together, but he goes, I'm putting on a festival here in Ventura. And he mm. goes, I'm going to name it after the first album, Frost and Fire. Yeah. Because a lot of guys in Europe knew that we were from Ventura. And he was going to have bands from all over. And he goes, would you guys come and do a signing session? And we said, well, hey, you know, why not? So uh, we went to check out his shows, a lot of great bands from all over the world descended on our little town. And uh, it was just amazing. And so when we, we got together for the signing session, uh, we signed autographs and some of those flats and handed out stickers and people brought their albums and we signed stuff for, yeah, I don't know, an hour, two hours. And it just blew us away. And the uh, word came to us that Oliver wanted to meet with us across the street at like this little local um, sushi bar. Yeah. And so we went over there, we were sitting there talking and Oliver goes, he goes, look, he goes, I know you guys don't ever want to get together because I want to ask you one last time. If you guys get together, you guys can headline uh, my next year's show, keep it true, like our 20th anniversary. Yeah. And we're going, wow, that's pretty amazing. Right. And Jarvis is sitting there and he goes, you know what he goes, not only that, he goes, he goes, this was so successful, this Frost and Fire uh, Festival I just put on. He goes, I'm going to do one next year. And if you guys get back together next year, you guys can headline in your hometown in the, the venue that we played our last show with before we broke up. He goes, you guys can be the headlining act here at Frost and Fire uh, for like a comeback thing. And so, you know, we talked about it amongst a band and we said, well, hey, you know, let's think about, let's talk about this. And the original idea was hey let's we'll get together we'll play a few shows just for fans and then hang it up again yeah but after we got back together and started playing we started having so much fun and instantly you know a lot of guys were going well you know where did all this new music come from the first week we had a band room we were working on new songs because that's like you know if you're a painter you paint pictures if you're a writer you write a book if you're a musician and we were never a band that played a lot of copy tunes. So as soon as we got back together, we started writing new material. Yeah. So we played Frost and Fire. 
sold out show. People came from all over the world. We were just blown away. Um, also too, Oliver invited us over uh, at that little meeting we had. He goes, why don't you guys do this before you make up your mind, fly over. He goes, my, my, my show's going to be coming up shortly. Uh, keep it true. He goes, why don't you fly over and just look at what's going on and see if you want to be part of this. And so me and Tim, he flew me and Tim over and we were just blown away. Matter yeah. of fact, everyone, we did a signing session there and it went on for like hours. People stretched all the way around the building. And matter of fact, me and Tim were walking around a building one night and there was all these guys in leather jackets that looked like a biker gang or something. And they were totally drunk, like German guys. And they're bumping into each other, mm. like having kind of like chest thumping contest. Right. And I go to, we were trying to get back in the building, go to Tim. I go, I'm not sure how this is going to turn out. Right. And so we have to get through these guys to get to the door. Yeah. Cause there's yeah. only a couple of ways in this giant building. And so we kind of went up to him and they said, oh, you know, what do you want? You know, I said, we're trying to get in. And one guy goes, Tim Baker. And another guy goes, Rob Garvin. And all of a sudden these guys said, we had no idea who these guys were. They're hugging us and kissing yeah, us yeah. and giving us beer and stuff. And, you know, it just blew us away that everyone that we met there knew who we were, even though we had no idea That's what was it. going on. It's a fantastic story. It's a great comeback story. One of the best I've, I've ever heard in, in heavy metal. But I was going to ask you earlier, um, why didn't you take up the offer in 2001, 2002, 2003? What was stopping you? Well, you know, the band had broken up. I'd sold my drum set. You know, we had a really nice band room. You know, we had like carpeted band room with a little dressing room with a little equipment room in back. Uh, you know, we had a bar in there and had a sink and we had a raised stage with, you know, a PA system and lights hanging from the roof. And it was right across the alley from our recording studio. Yeah. So when the band broke up and we sold everything, you know, I mean, you know, and then the guys, Jerry, our guitarist was dead. Mm. Uh, Flint left the band. Uh, you know, I mean, and then, then after, uh, you know, Jimmy joined the band. He quit the band. And Vern was a bass player for a while. He quit. A couple of the other guys were on Paradise Lost. They quit. So, I mean, the only guys that were kind of around so was me, Tim, and Greg. And we all kind of had some, not bad feelings, but, you know, we spent, put it this way. If you worked 20 years at a job and never got paid. <laughs> yeah. And you finally retired. And someone 20 years later comes up to you and saying, hey, you want to do that all over again? I'm not saying you won't consider it, but you might think, you know, hey, I did that for 20 years and not got paid. I'm not going to work in that nuclear power plant again for free, you know, or something like that. So, okay, fair uh, enough. And without trying to be tacky, uh, are you getting paid now? Like, is, is it financially viable to be Sirathungal in, in 2020, 2019? Well, like every other band, the only way to actually really make money is by playing shows. And to be honest, we weren't, none of us are getting rich. You know, I'm, there's a handful of bands that are getting rich as you know, and you can count them on your hands right now. Yeah. Several of the bands, whether it's Kiss or Black Sabbath or Judas Priest or either on their last tour or thinking about it. Right. Yeah, yeah. But the only time that we were making good money is like when we were playing our shows. And most of that goes back to, you know, uh, travel expenses, you know, or band room recording, what have you mm. equipment. So and, and, I, and I, I'm not speaking for our band. I'm speaking for every band. that's not one of the top 10 bands in the world. Most bands are like shark. They're swimming. They have to keep swimming to survive. And with this pandemic thing going down, this has been a, a struggle for every band alive. Matter of fact, talking to some people in the record industry, they're telling us the bands hurt even worse or bands 
like Iron Maiden or Saxon or bands like that, because a band like Sirathungo, we have a small band room with a couple of guys in the band. Mm. If you're a big band like Iron Maiden, you may have a hundred people on your payroll. And so if you're not, if you're not touring or, you know, you got to, you have to pay for uh, uh, the hanger for your 747. <laughs> sure, yeah. Probably all on a retainer as well. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And uh, I, I think also, too, we were talking about uh, big bands. We're talking about record sales for Paradise Lost and stuff. And I think a lot of big bands that used to sell millions of records, no one really buys records anymore. And I think uh, we were talking how lucky our band was because a lot of our fans are hardcore fans and they actually want to buy a record because it's kind of like a special uh, a collectible thing you know sure, whereas yeah. if you're a big, big fan and you used to sell a million records you may be down to selling 50,000 to 80,000 albums now which really isn't yeah uh, the money-making thing it was in the past so to answer your question we never did this to get rich or make money we we did this all along just to create music and mm. we're like that little cat in a doctor's office hang in there he's hanging by the little twig <laughs> we're like every other band just hanging in there just hoping that this pandemic thing will be over sooner than later so we can continue on uh, like we were before this all started really good okay so uh, obviously you released the new album uh, forever black this year in april uh, in april 2020 there's some brilliant songs on there like uh, the fire divine Stormbringer, before tomorrow um was there ever any consideration to not release it in April, obviously, the, the lockdown and the coronavirus started getting big, became big news around March. Maybe it was a bit later in the States, but it was kind of unfortunately timed, uh, the release of the album, because of what happened. Was there ever any consideration to push it back for a period of time, or was it locked in? Well, I think it was locked in. You know, I talked with Jarvis and a record company and stuff, and they they spent quite a bit of money getting it all, getting ready to be released and manufactured and stuff. And so I think that there was no uh, there was no talk of ever postponing it. Now, that said, you know, what was really depressing was we were going to play Keep It True two yeah. nights. It was the first band that they've ever had booked for two nights. And that was such a an honor and a privilege for us to do that. And we were excited because on the first night we were going to play the whole new album in its entirety. And some of maybe Paradise Lost our fourth album then on the second night we we're going to do just uh, you know some of our greatest hit stuff yeah so we were so excited to be able to play that album from front to back and you know talking with the band and stuff i mean we'll never that probably will never ever come about because if you think about it you know when you play let's say we'll play a big festival or something in europe we'll have an hour an hour and a half to play mm. we'll barely be able to fit in like all the songs you know our top songs that everyone wants to hear, let alone play like, you know, 45 minutes of one whole album. So that was really depressing to us. The only good thing that came about it was when we were making that album, and that's why we picked the artwork for it. When we started collecting the songs together, a few had their old sword and sorcery, uh, stuff like some of Greg's songs, Fire Divine or Frostmon Stream. Yeah. I wrote the lyrics to Legion's Arise, which was going to be part two to kind of join the Legion. It was kind of like a call to arms, like, hey, you know, we've, we were gone, but now we're back, you know, so yeah. come join us while we try to take over the world, right? But the rest of the music, Tim's dystopian nightmare was one of like very dark uh, future. And, you know, and we've had some doom elements in the band going back to our one of our first songs, Death of the Sun, which I wrote about the sun dying. Yeah. And then we have song Doom Planet, War Eternal, stuff like that. So we're not, we're no creatures that shy away from 
what we see as impending doom on mankind and the world. Yeah. yeah. But when that album started coming together, uh, you know, it had a very dark uh, atmosphere and aura about it. And that's why, you know, Tim's, Tim goes, you know, we forever black, this is going to be the album. And when it came out, the only saving grace was, you know, it came out during like a really dark period. And so we, <laughs> we, we felt like the album actually represented what was happening kind of in the world. Yeah. And I mean, that's not much consolation, but that was the only good thing I think to come out about it. It'd be like if you wrote a song, you know, like about, you know, flowers and it was springtime or something, you know, it kind of would fit the... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. So, um, so you mentioned the song Doom Planet there, I think. Uh, do you think, I mean, obviously that song's from 1986, I think. Do you think in 2020, are we still living on a doomed planet? Oh, it's getting so much closer. You know, here where we live in Ventura, it's a beautiful town by the ocean. When I was a kid living here, it used to rain every year. And every five years or so, you'd get a flood. Like we'd yeah. fill up our lake, you know, and stuff the rivers would all flood out to sea you know and it wouldn't be like floods where houses wash away but i mean there'd be a few like that but it would be a big big rain event in the last 10 15 years it only rains here once every five to eight years like right. it's supposed to rain tomorrow and it's going to rain like maybe 10 raindrops so it'll get your car wet but all our lakes are dry all the vegetation's dry and yet when it used to catch fire here and burn, it would burn about every 10 or 15 years, you'd have a big fire, but it would be controlled. And one year it was even on fire, our town, and, and it started raining and the rain put the fire out. But in mm. the last few years, two years ago, a thousand houses within a mile of where I'm sitting right now burnt down. My sister's house burnt down in this town called Ojai. And so now we're having major fires every two years or so. And in California this year, they had maybe at one point there was like 300 fires burning. And like two years ago, the fire that they had, the Thomas fire, it was the largest fire in California history. It was 4 million acres or something. Six of the fires this year that burned were way bigger than the one. And it's just not California. It's Oregon, Washington, where places where it's really green and they have giant trees and it rains, you know, every other day when they go through a period of two or three months, it's dry. And then all across the rest of the country where it's raining, you know, it's flooding, you know, the hurricanes, you know, they had more hurricanes this year than, you know, and the oceans rising. So, I mean, all this stuff is happening. People don't have to believe it. And that's, that's irony. Like you don't have to believe in climate change or global warming for it to happen around you. And so I think uh, I wrote the song Doom Planet. When I wrote it, I saw the writing on the wall and what's, what's amazing is back then people weren't really sure that that was going on even though there was people like us, you know, saying, Hey, this is happening. Yeah. But today, you, you know, in the town we live in, there's, there's no discussion over, is this really happening? Cause you know, like I said, when a thousand houses went in a mile of your house burns to the ground and we were standing out in our front yard, watching everything burn, uh, you know, you can't, there's no denying that anymore. So, but. Okay. So, the, so the answer is yes. <laughs> Yeah, and I and, and I'm I can predict this. Any more music we put out will probably not be any more uplifting than our last album. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Well, I wouldn't expect anything less. Okay, I'm, I'm going to finish up now in a couple of minutes. I just wanted to ask you one or two more questions. So, um, you you're obviously you know you and uh, Tim have been and, and Greg have been inspired by J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, Michael Moorcock, H.P. Lovecraft, but you're still writing music. Um, 
almost 50 years after some of your original songs would have been written. Are you still inspired by those literary sources or do you get inspired by other things nowadays? Well, Greg every year gives me a new book to read and I, I usually read it, but okay. I find myself, this is an irony. I mean, some people tell me, you know, there's no good bands out there and that's bullshit. Like we played every show we played at, there's been newer, younger bands that are out there to just totally kicking ass. And all you have to do is go into band camp. Metal Blade just released four or five albums just in the last day or so. Yeah. All you have to do is go out and listen to them. And there's bands better than us or better than any other bands that are coming out. So there's, there's always new music out there. I think the irony is, is people go back to what, what's comfortable for them. I find myself going back and rereading, you know, uh, the Dunwich Horror or the Call of Cthulhu or yeah. like an Elric book or something like that, because I feel familiar with it. It doesn't mean that I'm not reading new stuff and like it. It just, it's just like when I go back and, and someone will ask me, Hey, what's your favorite album? And I'll go like master of reality by black Sabbath. Sure. And even though I've listened to like four new bands that I think are great and I love them. When I go back and listen to that, it brings back an era of my life where I was younger and, uh, and it, it just had it, it. And I think it's the same reason guys love cars i'm a car guy and so is greg when i look at the cars i want i don't want the new mclaren you know i i don't want the new lamborghini i want the 1965 ferrari you know 100 million dollar ferrari or 63 gto or something because (laughs) that that captures something that was really special in my life and i think a lot of people do that with music whatever music they were listening to when they're uh, becoming of age, you know, their teenage years or whatever has a special significance to them. And I think that's, I think that's always going to be the truth. But that said, I'm reading new material. Um, I'm listening to new bands. And like I said, what, what, what really makes me feel good is when I hear a band that is so good and I feel like, you know, Hey, you know, when the time is for us to actually move off, um, exit stage left you know yeah there'll be other bands that'll carry on the torch of true metal that we're going to pass on to them and, sure. that, and that's that that's what really matters uh, any particular bands from the festivals you played any particular bands stand out well you know what i don't want to mention any of them because there's so many good ones if i mention a few and i leave some out okay it's gonna some of their feelings but uh there's good bands and there's good bands in almost every genre whether it's uh, heavy metal or death metal or black metal. Matter of fact, some of the best uh, festivals we played at, uh, I'll, I'll mention one band because it's, they're so uh, so strange compared to what we play. We played at a, a festival in Germany, Christendorf, mm. uh, Germany, uh, Chaos Descends. It was named after one of our songs and it's yeah. out in the middle of the forest, just beautiful. Yeah. And we played at night and there's like a stream that runs around there with a little train and there was like mountains there with trees on them. And I remember just playing and looking up at the stars and just, it was just blowing us away. Uh, the band that headlined the next night was a band, Sun O. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and they play, you know, some of their songs, I think maybe only have one or two notes in them. And they'll, they'll hit a, a note and they'll hold the guitars over their head and it'll feed back for like 10 minutes or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they have like, uh, they have racks of like fog machines and, uh, but it turns out, you know, it's like some of the guys were fans of our band and we listened to some of their stuff and was just blown away with it. And so my point is, is some of the bands that we were most amazed with were bands that weren't playing the type of music that we were familiar with 
or we consider kind of like our favorite styles of metal. Yeah. And to be able to play at festivals where you could uh, be exposed to bands that, uh, and I think there was people there at those festivals that saw us for the first time that were all like, you know, you look out of the crowd sometimes you look at people's faces and it's like utter disbelief. And me and Tim always laugh at it. We, we don't think that people are amazed how great we are. We think that they, they're, they are amazed because they don't understand what, what the hell we're trying to do. Uh, <laughs> but I think uh, listening to so many different bands that have so many different uh, uh, styles and stuff for us has been not only invigorating, but just a, uh, uh, just kind of gives us inspiration to keep keep carrying on with what we're doing great stuff and on that point then my final question well a little dicky bird told me that you might be working on some new material at the moment can you shed any light on that well i've been sworn to secrecy by <laughs> all right all the powers that be but I, I will say this when when we were finished with forever black we we're already working on new material and okay. uh, we have a whole bunch of new stuff in the works we're working on several projects and until they're actually announced by the record company, I'm not at liberty to say, but from the second that we were, we were done recording uh, Forever Black, we had new stuff in the pipeline. And here's what I'm, I'm excited about is a lot of the new material that we're doing. Every, every song, every new, new bit of stuff that we're, we're coming up with seems better than the stuff we're doing before. Mm. And so my dream is that we can, you know, uh, we can end end our career, you know, on a bang. Uh, and obviously, you know, with the passing of Ken Hensley and Eddie Van Halen, you know, we, we're we're in that group. We're in a group that's not going to be around much longer, and we know that. So our goal is to try to like create as much music as we can in the limited time that we have left, and share it with the world. Brilliant. Uh, that's a, that's a lovely positive note to end the podcast on. Uh, thank you very much, Robert. I really appreciate that. That was a great interview. And thank you for your time. I know you're probably a busy man, especially with your recording, your new stuff and all that. So I really appreciate it. Can I say something to your listeners? Of course, go ahead. My dream is to go to places I've never been. And one of my dreams is to come to Ireland. I, oh. I just mentioned that it hasn't rained here for years. And, the, you know, I see pictures of Ireland and I see it's green and I see the people, how wonderful they are there and happy and my dream is someday to maybe meet you in a pub and have like a, a pint of beer or something. And then we can shoot the bull and look outside and it'll be raining. And you, you complain about how disgusting the weather is on. I'll look outside <laughs> and go, wow, what is that stuff falling out of the sky? Right. Well, well that's a deal. If you ever do come to Ireland, uh, I'll have a pint of Guinness waiting for you and we can look outside at the rain and uh, we can do exactly that. That's my dream. Okay, so that was Robert Garvin, and I think everybody loves a comeback story, and of all the comebacks in metal, maybe Iron Maiden and and Judas Priest are the top two when Rob Halford and Bruce Dickinson and Adrian Smith returned respectively to those bands, but I think the most heartwarming and the nicest one I've ever heard is the return of Sarah Dungle to the stage, because they didn't want to stop back in 92, but the band kind of fell apart, as Robert uh, outlined there in the episode in, in great detail. And, you know, they got the opportunity to come back. They didn't really think they'd want to come back. But, uh, you know, it, it, what the message of this story, and it's the stories I love more than anything on these episodes. It's not going into the nitty gritty, really, of each track or, you know, 
not necessarily like what inspired you to write this or, you know, what were you thinking when you wrote that? But it's the stories of the bands and the artists that I love more than anything. And and Sarah Dungle's story is a great story. And it just proves that it's never too old to live your dream. And I think you can tell from listening to Robert on this episode that Sarah Dungle was his dream and it was Tim Baker's dream and it was all of their dream um, in the past as well. And the fact that they get to live it now in 2020, they're active on stage, obviously not this year, but they will be again. Uh, they're active in the studio and they've generally just had a massive return to form and their 2020 album, Forever Black, is excellent and one of the best albums of the year, in my opinion. Check it out if you enjoyed listening to, uh, if you well, if you've heard early Sarah Dungle, check it out. Or if you just, just enjoyed listening to that story there from Robert and it inspired you to go and check out the band, uh, start with that, I'd say, and give it a listen. Um, it's, it's a really good album. So yeah, it's never too late and just... To Robert and to Sarah Dungle, I just say, just keep on doing what you're doing because it's so inspiring. And to me, it's just, it it, it keeps me interested in heavy metal. It's not just the up and coming bands, which I'm very interested in, but it's the older legacy acts who deserve to be popular again, who are still working hard and, you know, still have the drive and the motivation and still want it. And you can tell with Sarah Thungle, they, they really still want it. And, and fair play to them for still uh, taking it because it's theirs. <laughs> it's theirs to take. Um, so that's going to do it for this episode of Feckin' Metal. Next week, uh, my episode is dependent on a poll that's live on Twitter at the moment. So it's either going to be me discussing uh, Iron Maiden albums post-reunion. So that's after, uh, including Brave New World and afterwards. Um, and I'm going to be discussing... The lesser popular tracks on those albums, maybe the hidden gems of those albums. And it's really an experiment for me as well to see if I can do an episode on my own without any guest. Because there will come a time in the future when there certainly just won't be an abundance of guests forever, you know. Eventually, I'm not going to have guests. And and maybe the podcast will move into a direction for some weeks where I I don't want a guest as well. But it's really, it's an experiment. So I've chosen a topic that I'm very comfortable discussing uh, and that's Iron Maiden post-reunion, which is the period where I became a fan and I've been a dedicated fan ever since. So it's either going to be that or it's going to be me and two friends, Darren and Connor, who have listed their top five hard rock and heavy metal albums and we're going to go through them and uh, Darren has a very different taste in rock and metal than I do and Connor has uh, some similar taste but I'd say he would throw in a a few curveballs anyway but next week's episode is running now uh, as a poll on Twitter a choice between those two or the third third option was uh, get a real interviewee (laughs) Uh, but nobody's voted for that yet but the, the poll um, actually probably the poll won't, will be finished oh no it won't sorry the poll is, will still be running for a few days by the time you hear this which which will be the 13th of uh, November so if you want to vote on that go on to my Twitter it's at Feckin Metal Cast um, and I'm just going to say even if I don't get to do the episode with Darren and Connor next week it will be a future episode down the line but just experimenting with um, polls on Twitter experimenting with doing an episode on my own just lots of experimentation going on here uh, on feckin' metal. Um, in the future, I have a couple of interesting guests lined up, uh, as always. Not as always, but as most of the time. One of them is from a band who have also made a comeback very recently in 2020. I've mentioned this band uh, a couple of times on recent episodes of feckin' metal. If you've been listening with a close ear, you might be able to guess who it is. It's a story not too dissimilar from Sarah Thungle, actually. So uh, maybe you can guess about uh, who who that will be. That won't be next week. Could be the week after. Uh, I'm due to record the episode next week anyway, so uh, it'll 
probably at the earliest be the week after next. Before we go, I'm going to play us out with a song from Sirithungal, as is the tradition on feckin' metal. So I've chosen the song Chaos Rising, and I've chosen the version from the recent live album, I'm Alive. Uh, this live version, I think, blows the studio version away. Not that the studio version is bad, but this live version is absolutely um, powerful and energetic and just fucking so impressive for a band of their age and of their heritage to still be doing uh, heavy metal at this level so this is um chaos rising it was originally on the 1991 album paradise lost if you want to check out the studio version 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 but this is from i'm alive this is chaos rising i've been your host fergal trainer and i'll see you next time Dust and bitter ash Wildfire burn